I'm going to begin with a prayer um, that comes from my, my youth, and it's, uh, it's about 500 years old. It was written by Thomas Cranmer, who was a reformer in the Anglican Church, and I think you'll understand as I pray this why it's so significant for our topic this morning. Let's pray together. Almighty God, unto whom all hearts are open, all desires known, and from whom no secrets are hid, cleanse the thoughts of our hearts through the work of Thy Holy Spirit, that we may more perfectly love Thee and worthily magnify Thy holy name. Father, we so depend right now upon the gift and the presence and the power of your Holy Spirit. You are aware of the constraints on my week, and you are a sufficient Savior to meet a, a, a needy pastor in this moment. So I pray, Father, that the preparation that I've put together would be enough in your hands that you could multiply loaves and fishes this morning and feed your people. Lord, use me this morning and may we hear you speak through the text of Holy Scripture. Above all things, may Jesus be lifted up and seen to be the great Savior that he is. For the sake of your glory, for our good and for our joy, as well as for the forward motion of our mission to be and make disciples of Jesus, I ask it. Amen. In 1956, Zondervan Music Publishers released a song that is known, I think, only by the first line of the first verse. And that first line is, Oh, be careful, little eyes. This is not a song that I knew growing up. In fact, I learned it from, interestingly, one of my seminary professors uh, about 20 years ago, Mike Bullmore. It's not a difficult song. In my mind, it's not even a particularly good song. But the more this song has stayed with me over the years, uh, the more it's been a song that I've come to respect its depth and, frankly, its power in my life. This song, though simple, is deceptively sophisticated. And in some ways, it perfectly summarizes the message of the Scripture reading that you just heard, as well as the big idea of today's sermon. So let's, let's first hear the song. You've got to hear the song. If you know it, you can sing it with me. And then we'll move on to the big idea. The song goes like this. Oh, be careful, little eyes, what you see. Oh, be careful, little eyes, what you see. There's a Father up above, and He's looking down with love. So be careful, little eyes, what you see. Oh, be careful, little ears, what you hear. Oh, be careful, little ears, what you hear. There's a Father up above, and He's looking down in love. So be careful, little ears, what you hear. Oh, be careful, little hands, what you do. Oh, be careful, little hands, what you do. There's a Father up above, and He's looking down with love. So be careful, little hands, what you do. Oh, be careful, little feet, where you go. Oh, be careful, little feet, where you go. There's a Father up above, and He's looking down in love. So be careful, little feet, 
where you go. Anybody know the last line? Oh, be careful, little mouth, what you say. Oh, be careful, little mouth, what you say. There's a Father up above, and He's looking down in love. So be careful, little mouth, what you say. Now, that song, though sweet and memorable, if we're honest, is not a little bit terrifying. The writers of that song knew it. That's why they wrote it. Parents and Sunday school teachers know it. That's why they teach it. I wouldn't deny it. But it also has its caution, doesn't it? It's, it's admonition. It's interesting, but every time I think of, oh, be careful, little eyes, my mind almost instinctively shifts to a particular scripture that's found in Second Chronicles, a truth I also learned from my preaching professor, Mike Bullmore. Second Chronicles 16.9 speaks of another pair of eyes. They're not our eyes. Second Chronicles 16.9, the Bible says that the eyes of the Lord run to and fro, around the whole earth to give strong support to those whose heart is blameless toward Him. Isn't that magnificent? Second Chronicles 16.9 The eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to give strong support to those whose heart is blameless toward Him. The word blameless in this context doesn't mean, doesn't signal perfection so much as integrity, um, wholeness, something that's the same way all the way through. You know what I mean? Who you are when no one's looking. And I'll tell you this much. Who you are before God when no one's looking is who you are. And God is always looking. Who you are before God when no one's looking is who you are. God's always looking. The technical theological term we're looking for here is the immensity of God or the omnipresence of God. The fact that God is everywhere all the time. There is no place in the universe where you can go where God did not already beat you there. And so the psalmist writes, fittingly I might add, where shall I go from your spirit? Where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is as bright as the day for the darkness is as light with you. This morning, it is our extraordinary privilege to consider the teaching of our Savior found in Luke chapter 12, verses 1 to 3. Luke chapter 12, verses 1 to 3. If you're not there, I'll give you an opportunity to turn there. Luke chapter 12, verses 1 to 3. We'll begin with a word of caution and then a word of encouragement. We're just following the contours of Jesus' teaching. And through it all, I trust we'll learn a bit more intimately why it is that who we are when no one's looking as disciples of Jesus Christ is of non-negotiable, absolutely critical importance. Who you are before God when no one's looking, that's who you are. And God is always looking. So number one, beware the temptation to hypocrisy because it suffuses through you 
and spreads to others. By the way, preferred spelling on suffuses, S-U-F-F-U-S-E-S. S-U, two F's, U-S-E-S. Beware the temptation to hypocrisy because it suffuses through you and spreads to others. Would you look with me at the first half of the first verse in Luke chapter 12? Gospel according to Luke chapter 12 verse 1 begins, In the meantime, when so many thousands of the people had gathered together that they were trampling one another, he began to say to his disciples first. Now let's just hold it up right there and we'll get our bearings for, for a moment. Last week we traveled with Jesus to the home of a Pharisee where he accepted an invitation to dinner. As we make our way into chapter 12, it would seem every indication here that what is occurring here in verse 1 is happening hard on the heels of Jesus' denunciation of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law that we found in chapter 11. If you were here last week, how could we forget the six unrelenting woes of chapter 11, the tail end there of chapter 11, where Jesus issued these to the Pharisees and to the lawyers, back to back to back to back to back to back to back. So that's just taken place because Luke chapter 12 verse 1 begins with the phrase, in the meantime. Now furthermore, verse 1 indicates that Jesus' popularity, uh, at least with the population at large, was continuing to grow. A handful of weeks ago in chapter 11 verse 29, the crowds were increasing, we learned. And now here in chapter 12 verse 1, it becomes clear that what uh, once Uh, The crowd is grown and it's grown so unruly that it's at the point of near street fighting and riot because Luke chapter 12 verse 1 says so many thousands of the people were trampling one another. Can you picture it? It's it's actually a, a brutal scene. The word for trampling here in the original literally means that they were walking over one another. They were actually physically crushing one another just in order to hear the teaching of Jesus. Finally, the first half of verse 1, we have a fascinating particular that Luke includes that I think we could easily breeze by if we didn't take our time. Notice how Luke introduces this portion of Jesus' teaching in verse 1. In the meantime, when so many thousands of the people had gathered together that they were trampling one another, he began to say to his disciples, first. Is that significant? that detail matter? How could it not? Picture the scene. People from the crowd are, in point of fact, stampeding one another just so that they could get a chance to hear what Jesus has to say. And yet he turns not to them, but to his disciples first. What's he saying here, even before he opens his mouth? He's saying that those who know him, those who walk with him, those who are committed to living their lives alongside him, they are the ones who get to come to the front of the line. Jesus always teaches his disciples first, not because he doesn't love the crowd, but because he does love the crowd. And this is the ultimate way to reach them, the training of the 12. This is Jesus' constant strategy. You take care of your depth, and God will take care of your breadth and width. It's sound wisdom for us today. Now we come to the main point of point one. Listen to what Jesus says to his disciples first. Beware the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Beware the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. I just want to zero in on two of these words in the back half of verse 1. One that contains a word picture 
and then one that's the, the word itself. Let's start with the, the word itself, hypocrisy. Hypocrisy. We began to deal with this last week, and we dealt with it last week, and we see why we did so. Last week, we watched Jesus over dinner with the Jewish leadership address them with no less than seven separate condemnations, six woes plus one. And though he dealt with different problematic aspects of their leadership, the common thread running through these blistering critiques was hypocrisy. We see that now loud and clear in view of how he warns the disciples in chapter 12, verse 1, because he says, beware the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. If you remember, we said last week that word hypocrisy, its original use comes from the Greek word uh, hypocrisis, which is the name of, of a play actor on a stage. It was a term used to describe an individual who took on an alternate identity as an act. A person was putting on a public performance. And so the, the Jewish leadership, the Pharisees, the teachers of the law, in this sense, were hypocrites. And if you remember the points from last week, their hypocrisy showed itself in their deformed theology, their vanity, their impurity, their severity, their repeating the errors of history, and finally, their failure to embrace sin's only remedy, which was the grace of God and the preaching of Jesus Christ. Put simply, they were hypocrites. Now, what's painfully clear here in verse 1 is that Jesus is not merely castigating the Jewish leaders, although he is. He's going further. What Jesus is saying is that his disciples had better be on their guard against hypocrisy themselves. And when we were opening, and if we were to open up this teaching to the rest of the New Testament, what we see is that God's word strikes this chord repeatedly. Now, using an English concordance to look up the word hypocrisy, you'd only see it appear a few times. But if we stay with the same Greek word that Luke uses here in chapter 12, verse 1, we see it pop up in several different places. For example, in Romans 12, 9, the Apostle Paul writes, Let love be genuine. Let love be genuine. That word genuine could be literally translated unhypocritical. Or we encounter the same thing in 2 Corinthians 6, 6, where the apostle speaks of genuine love. Same word, unhypocritical love. In 1 Timothy 1, 5 and in 2 Timothy 1, 5, the apostle addresses the issue again when he speaks of what he calls sincere faith or unhypocritical faith. Peter's after the exact same concept in 1 Peter 1, 22, when he calls the church to a sincere brotherly love. Same word unhypocritical, unhypocritical brotherly love, genuine brotherly love. Finally, in James 3.17, James 3.17, when James speaks of the wisdom from above, how many of you love that passage as much as I do? James 3.17, about the wisdom from above. James writes that the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. That last word in the list, James 3.17, is the word, once more, you guessed it, unhypocritical. Unhypocritical wisdom from above. So what do we learn from this little tour of the New Testament letters as it relates to this reality? What we learn is to paraphrase 1 Corinthians 10.13, that there's no temptation that's overtaken the Pharisees. That's not common to you and me. That's not common to folks who are living their lives for Christ. The first century Jewish leaders aren't the only ones who need to be on the lookout for this temptation in their lives. 21st century disciples need it as well. Lest we imagine that hypocrisy was only a challenge for first century Christians and not for us. 
Now, here's where the wheels begin to hit the road if they haven't for you already. Because this word picture that Jesus uses to describe the problem of hypocrisy is compelling. I mean, at least it is to me. What does he liken hypocrisy to? To leaven. To leaven. What's leaven? I don't do a whole lot of cooking, so I had to look this up. Leaven is a substance. It usually refers to yeast, right, that's made, that's added to dough to make it ferment and rise. Now, in the New Testament, it's occasionally used as a, as a metaphor, a, a symbol for even a, a, a spiritual or a physical reality. So in the next chapter, Luke 13, 21, we'll learn from Jesus that the kingdom of God is like a woman who took and hid three measures of flour until it was all leavened. Now, if we take what Jesus says about leaven in 13.21 and apply it to what he says in chapter 12, verse 1, we learn something. We learn something about the qualities of leaven, that it suffuses through the dough. It, 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 it permeates and spreads through all of it. That's what Jesus means when he speaks of hypocrisy as leaven. So beware the temptation to hypocrisy because it suffuses through you. But here's the second danger of hypocrisy according to Scripture. It's not just a problem because it suffuses through you. It's a problem because it spreads to others. In other words, hypocrisy is never a victimless crime. It's a corporate crime. We recommend that parents don't deposit their sick little ones in the nursery, not simply because they should be at home resting, but also because they could infect others, right? And in the pages of the New Testament, what we learn is that sin spreads through a congregation like leaven through a batch of dough or like a flu through a nursery. Hypocrisy in particular. So Paul warns of this in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 6, when he writes, Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. So the image there in 1 Corinthians 5 is a corporate image. It's a church-gathered image. Finally, let's note as clear as day that the Apostle Paul points to this tendency of hypocrisy to spread through God's people in Galatians chapter 1, verse 11, starting in verse 11. In the context, Paul is reminding the churches of Galatia that Jews and Gentiles are on equal footing as it relates to being a part of the people of God. In other words, that the ground is level at the cross. And what's so painful for Paul is that he points this out, and even though the apostle Peter knew this, it didn't keep him from acting hypocritically with reference to his convictions, especially when those convictions would become relationally costly for him. So we see what Paul says in Galatians 1, 11 and following. Paul says, when Cephas, that's Peter, came to Antioch, he says, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, when James and the other Jews came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not a Jew, how can you force Gentiles to live like Jews? You see what's going on here in this context? Peter is a 
towering figure in the early church. He is arguably the towering figure in the early church. And yet the hypocrisy in Peter's heart led him so astray that when it came to the inclusion of others across ethnic lines, Peter ended up looking like a a cliquish 12-year-old in a 6th grade locker hallway. And hypocrisy not only decimated Peter's witness to the Gentiles in this case, but it served to confuse other Christians and trip up other early church leaders, men like Barnabas, who was a man of significant stature in the pages of Scripture. So let's just do the application. What's, what's the lesson for us? The lesson is that we need to take heed. We need to be suspicious. We need to be skeptical of our own hearts on this point. It's not for nothing that verse 1 says, despite the massive crowds, that Jesus began to say to his disciples first, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Are you even aware of the New Testament categories, much less the New Testament call to what the Bible describes as unhypocritical love, Romans 12.9, unhypocritical faith, 1 Timothy 1.5, unhypocritical wisdom, James 3.17. Could you define each of those? Would you know it if you saw it in your life? Those texts are worth dwelling on. They're worthy of your best meditation. Because it's one thing if your hypocrisy could be, or mine, could be contained to us alone. But that's not what the Bible teaches and that's not what Jesus is saying here. What Jesus is saying here is that hypocrisy is transferable. It's communicable. It's contagious. Who you are before God when no one's looking is who you are. God is always looking. So beware the temptation to hypocrisy because it suffuses through you and it spreads to others. Okay, second and final point today. Who you are before God when no one's looking is who you are. God is always looking. So be motivated toward personal holiness by taking the judgment seat of Christ seriously. Be motivated toward personal holiness by taking the judgment seat of Christ seriously. Look with me once more at Luke chapter 12, this time verses 2 and 3. Luke 12, 2 and 3, Jesus says, Nothing is covered up that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. Therefore, whatever you have said in the dark shall be heard in the light. And what you have whispered in private rooms shall be proclaimed on the housetops. And we've heard Jesus speak like this in the Gospel of Luke before. He said it in Luke chapter 8, verse 17. This was five months back during the fall when we studied Luke 8, 17, when he said, Nothing is hidden that will not be made manifest, nor is anything secret that will not be known and come to light. So we said it five months ago, and I'll just say it again today. This is, this is far from an isolated teaching in the Bible. The truth that Jesus is driving at in Luke 8, 17 and Luke 12, 2 and 3 is, is clearly taught in other New Testament passages as well. Romans 2, 16, Paul speaks of a day when according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. In 1 Corinthians 4, 5, we're told, therefore do not pronounce judgment before the time before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Or listen to how Paul puts it in 1 Timothy 5.24. In 1 Timothy 5.24, Paul makes painfully clear that hypocrisy not only suffuses through all we do 
and it spreads to others. But the, in the end, hypocrisy is something that we cannot ultimately hide. We're not getting away with anything. 1 Timothy 5.24 says, The sins of some men are conspicuous, just obvious, going before them to judgment. But the sins of others appear later. And he doesn't develop that. He just leaves it there for Timothy to think about. 1 Timothy 5.24, the sins of some men are conspicuous, going before them to judgment, but the sins of others appear later. That's a frightening Bible passage if there ever were one. So let's get back to the verses at hand. Jesus says in Luke 12, 2 and 3, nothing is covered up that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. Therefore, what you have said in the dark shall be heard in the light. What you've whispered in private rooms shall be proclaimed on the housetops. What Jesus is describing here for Christians is undoubtedly what the New Testament describes as the judgment seat of Christ. The judgment seat of Christ. Now the first step in, in taking the judgment seat of Christ seriously is first of all to believe that it's coming. For every one of us, there's a judgment coming. You know, Scripture describes a number of judgments that are yet future in the history of this world. I was able to come up with five of them as I studied. The Old Testament promises a future judgment upon Israel that has not yet come to pass. It's described in Ezekiel chapter 20, verses 33 to 38. Secondly, the Old and New Testaments promise a future judgment upon the nations that has not yet come. That's described in passages like Joel chapter 3, verses 1 to 16. Also in Matthew 25, verses 31 to 46. That's sometimes also referred to the judgment of the sheep and the goats. It's the judgment of the nations. There will also be a future judgment where Satan himself and all of his demonic host will be judged. That judgment is described several times in the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 12, verses 7 to 13. Revelation 20, verses 1 to 3. And Revelation 27 to 10. And then finally, there's what's known as the great white throne judgment. This is yet another judgment at the end of the age. Revelation 20, verses 11 to 15. The only subjects present there are unbelievers who upon the judgment's conclusion, every last one of them will be cast into an eternity in the lake of fire. That's the great white throne judgment. It's not the one that you want to be at. And the good news of the gospel is that by grace through faith in Jesus that you can have your case settled out of that courtroom. You don't have to be present in that courtroom. But like I said, the first step in learning to take the judgment seat of Christ seriously is to believe it's coming. So what is this judgment? Well, John 5.22, John 5.27, Jesus says, The Father judges no one, but He has given all judgment to the Son. He has given Him authority to execute judgment because He is the Son of Man. Romans 14.10, Paul declares that we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. And although he calls it the judgment seat of God there, it seems to be simply a, a confirmation of the deity of Christ. Because Jesus already tells us the Father judges no one and He's given all judgment over to the Son. And add to that that the fact that Paul explicitly refers to the judgment seat of Christ in 2 Corinthians 5.10. In 2 Corinthians 5.10, Paul writes to the church, we must all stand before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. And it's here at the judgment seat of Christ where Jesus, what he says in Luke 12, 2 and 3, will occur. 
namely that nothing is covered up that will not be revealed or hidden that will be not, not be known. Therefore, whatever you've said in the dark will be heard in the light. What you've whispered in private rooms will be proclaimed on the housetops. How much thought have you given to verses 2 and 3? My sense is the reason for much of our, our boasting, for example, or our self-promotion on the one hand, and, and the reason for much of our secret sinning and our, our self-loathing on the other hand is that we spend very little time dwelling on verses 2 and 3. Mount Evangelical Free Church, there's a judgment coming. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. And now this truth cuts both ways because there is a very real sense in which this truth ought to be deeply encouraging to us and very, very freeing to us. I'll explain that in a moment. And there's also a very real sense in which this truth should be genuinely intimidating and very alarming to us. First of all, consider the fact that if you know Jesus Christ, you don't need to spend your life calling attention to yourself. If you know Jesus, you can be liberated. You can be freed from living a life of self-aggrandizement and self-advertisement. You see, if you're a Christian, you, don't simp- you simply don't have the responsibility of making sure everyone knows how great you are. You want to know why? Because at the judgment seat of Christ, all that's going to come out. Remember, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that everyone may receive what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. And I'm emphasizing good here, what you've done for good. The unseen good works that you have done for the glory of Christ through the power of the Spirit for your own joy, it'll all be rewarded one day publicly. There are many places in the pages of the New Testament where this is taught. There are many places in the pages of the New Testament where the reverse is taught as well. Think about what Jesus says about financial generosity in Matthew chapter 6, verses 2 to 4. Jesus says, When you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Do you hear it? It, and it doesn't have to do with financial giving only. It's every part of our lives. It cuts straight across. You don't need to spend your days trying to figure out ways, even subtly, to, to let people know about who you are and what you've done. Listen, if you know Jesus at the judgment seat of Christ, he's going to do that for you. How'd that be? What God is saying to us here is live humbly. That humility is the queen of virtues. Can you think of a bunch of different ways over the years that you've never gotten credit for what you've done or said? Listen to me. Nothing is covered up that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be made known. Therefore, what you have said in the dark, it will be brought into the light and heard in the light. What you've whispered in private rooms will be proclaimed on the housetops. If you're a follower of Jesus, the sort that you know, it doesn't make a big deal of yourself. You just follow him and keep your head down and make much of him. You're not all that impressed with yourself. Let me just tell you, you have a lot to look forward to at the judgment seat of Christ. I know a few people like that in this room. They have a lot to look forward to at the judgment seat. 
Now, at the same time, the judgment seat of Christ is obviously a massive motive in the life of the believer to abandon your pursuit of secret sin. Can I get an amen? That was a weak amen, by the way. Now, some of you in this room have been on the hot seat this entire sermon. I know you have. That's because the Holy Spirit is at work in your life and He's not going to let you go. So, friend, please hear me this morning. Who you are before God, when no one's looking, is who you are. God's always looking. If you're living a double life, and you know what I mean, a life that is totally disintegrated in the sense that it has no integrity. You may be here Sunday after Sunday. You may attend the Sunday school hour. You may serve around here, be part of a community group. You may even be a covenant member of this church. But the thing is, and you know it, you act a certain way in public with God's people and an entirely different way in private. As soon as you're alone, someone else entirely comes out. Someone with very little interest in the things of God. Someone who doesn't enjoy Christ's presence. Someone who lives for worldly pursuits. Comfort, sloth, sex, food, controlled substances, television, social media, you name it. And if that's you, I hope this text is a wake-up call. Please, please hear me. Nothing is covered up that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. Therefore, what you have said in the dark will be heard in the light. What you have whispered in private rooms, it'll be preached. That's the word proclaimed there, K. Russo. It'll be preached on the housetops. So we're not getting away with anything. But here's the good news. And it's really, really good news. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So repent. Turn from your sin. Come to Christ again. Be forgiven and walk with him into the days ahead with hope. A hope that extends all the way to the judgment seat of Christ. It's all going to come out anyway. Why not repent today? Who you are before God when no one's looking is who you are and God is always looking. So be motivated toward personal holiness by taking the judgment seat of Christ seriously. Well, let's review. Who you are before God when no one's looking is who you are. God is always looking. So number one, beware the temptation to hypocrisy because it suffuses through you and it spreads to others. And be motivated toward personal holiness by taking the judgment seat of Christ seriously. You know, in view of this morning's study of Luke chapter 12, I wonder if the good folks at Zondervan who hold the copyright to, oh, be careful little eyes, I mean, wouldn't consider a little tweak in the content. Because the motive to beware the temptation to hypocrisy and be moving toward personal holiness in this text is rooted ultimately in the judgment seat of Christ, isn't it? It's not in the love of God so much as the judgment seat of Christ. So perhaps we might sing it this way. Oh, be careful, little eyes, what you see. Oh, be careful, little eyes, what you see. Because Christ is up above and he's coming down to judge. So be careful, little eyes, what you see. Next week, it's our privilege to continue our study of Luke's gospel. And we're considering Jesus' teaching on the fear of man and the antidote to the fear of man, which is the fear of the Lord. That's next week. Right now, let's pray. Father in heaven, your word is a light that shines into the darkest part of our souls. 
And Lord, as many as are gathered in this place that, that know you, that have been grafted into the family of God by grace through faith in Jesus and are united to Christ, as many of us who know you in that way, Lord, there is no way we can't experience some measure of conviction through these words. These words were not designed to get us off the hook. They were, they were written for disciples, they were preached to disciples, and they were designed to show us the hook that we are already on. So I pray two things for us this morning. I pray that we would be a church, and, and individually, members and families that are just simply unimpressed with ourselves, that we would just be people for our own joy, that are just moving out into God and, and, and outward into other people to serve them and love them, we would be people who, who keep our heads down and, and aren't concerned with calling attention to ourselves. That's all going to come out of the judgment seat of Christ. How much the better, Lord Jesus, if you call attention to your gracious work in us rather than we do. Because if we do, we will have our reward and it will be brief in this life. And secondly, Lord Jesus, I pray for anybody here within the sound of my voice that is participating in some sort of secret sin and I ask, Lord Jesus, that through the power of your Holy Spirit, you would ferret that out, that you would make that public, that a deep and searching confession before you, before brothers and sisters as appropriate, and that you would help us, Lord, to live our lives in an integrated way, to be the same person all the way through, because who we are when we are alone before you is who we are. You are always looking. In Jesus' name, amen.